With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Part one, we discussed, is the world getting stupider? And we also discussed how to make a video viral. What are the key components? And we talk about that a little bit more in this episode, but the focus of this episode is his book, what the F does the Constitution say? Here's Ben Sheehan. Starting with the First Amendment, it seems like even there, there's so much controversy around each amendment, but like the First Amendment, freedom of speech, I think nobody really knows what that means. Because <laughs> there was all this argument about like, oh, why can this person say this thing on Twitter and this person can't and blah, blah, blah. Like, Obviously, it means, okay, freedom of speech in if you're standing on publicly held land, I guess. But what is it really? What is freedom of speech? Freedom of speech is actually very, the First Amendment is, can best be understood by the very first word of the amendment, which is Congress. It says that Congress cannot pass a law to restrict freedom of speech, to, uh, to create a religion that you have to join, to ban a religion, um, to, uh, you know, prevent free press, uh, to prevent people from assembling peaceably, to prevent people from protesting, which they called, you know, petitioning the government for a redress of grievances. This all has to do with Congress not being able to make a law to restrict our freedom of speech. So Twitter is not Congress. Twitter is a private company. It's not even a government entity, so they can do whatever they want. If they wanted to, um, you know, ban everyone talking about, um, you know, uh, oranges being better than apples, and that was something that they wanted to enforce on their platform, they could. It's, it seems like a stupid thing, but like it's a private company. It's not bound to the the First Amendment. So this whole idea, you know, we, we maybe we it's a testament to the fact that we think of Twitter as being so powerful. You know, it's almost like a a, a, a branch of Congress, or, or or it's just such a such a powerful entity. We feel like they, um, you know, it would be infringing our rights for them to restrict speech. But they have every right uh, to restrict the speech that's on their platform. They're a private company; it's their platform. You know, if same way that like you know a restaurant uh, uh, doesn't want you know to wants to you know have you wear masks, they can do that. They're a private. Company. I mean, this is all this is all sort of silly when you realize that this First Amendment is very specifically talking about what Congress can and can't do. What, what about like a town hall, like or a local municipal town hall, like uh, or a town square? I mean, uh, so I'm on you know land owned by my municipality. Can they? Can the municipality? Can the mayor say there's no talking about this uh, in the town square? 
So that's a really good question, and that has to do with um, you know there may be certain states that have uh, laws. There may be certain um, you know municipalities that have uh, speech laws. But I I think the Supreme Court would uphold the sort of central fact that even though they are specifically talking about Congress, it sort of extends to governments in general. Um, and that would be up to the court. If it was a specific example about what you can and can't say, uh, you know, that would be a court's decision. But, you know, Congress is generally understood to be, Congress can't pass a law, but also we, we think that in the spirit of this amendment, you know, the government specifically cannot restrict, um, you know, your speech, except for in very, uh, you know, kind of sort of granular circumstances. You know, a couple carve-outs that they've had are, you know, things like you can't, um, you know, shout fire in a, a crowded theater. Um, you can't directly incite uh, and inspire violence, uh, you know, um, libel, slander, uh, child pornography. These are all expressions of uh, speech that have been found to be okay to be restricted um, by the, the government and still be in congruity with the First Amendment. Right. So, so you know, it's an interesting question because if, if there is really freedom of speech, you know, how do you decide where that line is? Okay, but except for libel, except for slander, except for... Uh, you know, encouraging people to rebel, uh, uh, encouraging people to do violence. And I guess, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing because that line could be drawn at, in, in different places in different areas of our history. Well, it's the Supreme Court's job to say what the, you know, what the Constitution means and what the law means. So the Supreme Court has, you know, decided First Amendment cases for hundreds of years. And this is, this is their job to say, you know, what, what is and isn't permissible uh, in the spirit of the Constitution. And then moving on to the Fifth Amendment, like that, that's the Fifth Amendment is probably the one that's most mentioned on TV. Like people are on court and they take the fifth. And what, so, so that means you can't, you don't, you don't have to testify. You can refuse to answer questions that could be testifying against yourself. And, uh, but how is that related to the Miranda rights? So I guess the Miranda rights is the police say you have the right to say or do. Uh, or no, anything you say or do can be held against you. Right. So you're talking, yeah, I mean, that they're sort of similar. I mean, you can't um, be for, you know, you basically can't, it has to do with like collecting evidence and, and I'm, I'm not a criminal lawyer. So I think there would be criminal lawyers who can definitely provide better examples. Um, but, you know, in the spirit of why that we have the bill of rights, this is again, to protect you as an individual from a totalitarian government. So you can't, you know, in the, in the, in the original constitution, you know, you can't, uh, you can't have post, you know, ex facto laws, which means you can't arrest somebody for something that isn't a crime or make it a crime and then charge them with that. That's that's illegal. You can't have a uh, bill of attainders, you know, basically locking people up and and uh, putting them away without holding a trial. So all of these protections in the Fifth Amendment and the Fourth Amendment and the entire Bill of Rights are meant to protect us from, you know, a totalitarian government. So one that could, you know, through uh, law enforcement, uh, take away uh, our rights, restrict our movements, uh, lock us up without a fair trial, without due process. That's a huge one, a part of the, the Fifth Amendment is that you can't be denied your life, liberty, or property without, um, you know, due process of, of federal law. And this all goes back to the central tenet of the Bill of Rights is that, yes, we are strengthening the power of the government 
for under the Constitution. It's stronger, it's more cohesive than it was under the Articles of Confederation, but that doesn't mean we are going to lose our individual rights, which is the whole reason, you know, we kind of wanted to start this country in the first place. So, yeah, so, you know, you can't, you can't be deprived of, of property or the ability to make a, a living without due process. Uh, what about like in this past year? And, and I'm not saying an opinion either way, but I'm curious with all of the business shutdowns and, and, you know, 55 million people went unemployed. Uh, many business owners, you know, lost their generational family businesses. Was that unconstitutional in some way to force these businesses to, I mean, it was in some cases over a year, these businesses had to be shut down. So it, it creates a really sort of strange, interesting and sad situation where we're talking about people's liberty being pitted against somebody else's life. And your liberty and, and your property, your ability to, to run a business, but just the sheer proximity to other people jeopardizes somebody's life. And this is also the sort of con, um, conflict that we see with mask mandates, right? Somebody's liberty to wear a mask or not you know, wear a mask um, being intertwined with somebody's life. Because if you are spreading the disease, even if you're not getting sick, you could give it to somebody who gets really, really sick. So, you know, in your decision to get vaccinated is not purely an individual decision, because if you are not vaccinated, you are a host that the virus could, you know, infect and, and mutate and have variants that then are, you know, stronger than the current vaccines that we have. So the, the intertwining of where your liberty infringes on somebody else's, you know, right to live is a mm. complex question. And that is what's at the heart of the business uh, situations that you just explained. It's what's at the heart of our mask mandates. Um, and if you were to really just look at those three words on paper, life, liberty, and property, I think they are you know, listed mm. in that order for a reason. You have a right to life before you have a right to liberty, before you have a right to property. Um, that's just my own personal interpretation of it, but no, that's the best explanation I've heard. So I, you're right. They're probably put in a, in that order for a reason. You know, I, I wonder, like I was just reading and again, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to ask the questions that's on people's minds without necessarily saying do this or do that. But like, I was just reading this morning about this coach, I guess, at some community college in Washington state who, since she was a child, she got seizures and anaphylactic reactions from vaccines. She had a bunch, all the vaccines you're supposed to have before she entered preschool and she got massively sick and she consulted. So, so more recently she consulted allergists and um, doctors about what she should do. And they advised her not to take uh, the vaccine. I'm not saying people shouldn't take the vaccine or they should. Uh, I'm just saying this person had, had, would get sick apparently. And the, so she offered all these concessions, like she would get tested for COVID three times a week. She would wear a, a more fitted, you know, professional, like N95 mask. She would do all these things to, to um, kind of overcome the fact that she couldn't get vaccinated, but they fired her uh, because they, they just decided not to give any exceptions, which was their right to do. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just wondering about situations like that and somehow or other, uh, it felt like her rights were infringed upon, even though she was a, a good employee and, and willing to offer all sorts of concessions. I guess they figured if they gave her an exception, they'd have to maybe give other exceptions and they didn't want to do that. I, I don't know really the full story. Well, there are always going to be a handful of exceptions to the rule. 
And so what it sounds like is that there's something in the vaccine that given her condition um, could be life-threatening to her. And so they didn't want to take that, she didn't want to take that risk because she has a right to, to life. And so, you know, the sad thing is that she'd have to do everything she can. She'd probably have to just stay at home all the time and quarantine and work remotely and, or, and you know, try to not, you know, interact with people. I, I often think about if you live by yourself in a, a cabin in the woods and you don't come out into contact with anybody um, at all uh, whatsoever and you don't, ever go into big cities or crowded places like I don't really care if you don't get the vaccine at that point because you're not you know if you are removed from society and always removed from society and barely and don't come into contact with people then you're not going to spread the disease but if you are somebody who is a member of society you live in a city you live in a town with you know a a a, a, a significant number of people that are at a close proximity you are threatening my life by not getting vaccinated. I understand that you think that it is not you, you, it is an infringement of your liberty um, to be forced to get the vaccine, but because you not getting the vaccine does threaten other people's lives, it's not cut and dry. You know, life, liberty, yeah. and property don't have clean cuts between them. There are parts where they overlap, and that's why it's up to you know the Supreme Court to ultimately make the decision where one ends and the other begins. Yeah, and, and I guess in this case, you know, maybe the the college or the state or whatever wanted to just have a have it be very simple. You either do this or you're not employed. Even though she had weird, you know, you know, seizures or whatever, if she gets vaccines, I guess they decided to be consistent. Um, well, I'll just add that for anybody listening, um, you know, if you want to have an a, opinion of on this from somebody who has both had COVID and had the vaccine, I vastly pre prefer the vaccine. You know, I've had COVID complications for 18 months now. I got it back in tw March 2020. Um, I'm one of the long haulers. And so I can tell you right now, it is not, it is get the vaccine, deal with the, the issues if they're temporary that come with it. But it is a lot better than having to deal with long COVID because that is way worse. And I'm one of the lucky ones that survived. Wow, you had it in March 2020. You must have been flipping out. I was pretty frightened. Yeah, I had it in March 2020, March to April 2020. How how badly did you have it? Did you go um, to the hospital? I, I I went to the hospital, but I was only there for a few hours. I didn't need to get intubated or anything. I was having trouble breathing, but I had like loss of taste. I had um uh I had shortness of breath, chest tightness. You know, I basically hard to breathe for like uh 10 days or so. That was probably the scariest part of it. Um, but, uh, I still have tinnitus in my left ear, uh, that I never had uh, before I was sick. And so I have to deal with that and mask it with noises at night, uh, and take supplements. I have to do, um, uh, you know, I have insomnia issues that I have now that I didn't have before. So it definitely, and fatigue issues. So like, again, for anyone listening, if you're given the choice between getting COVID and getting the vaccine, even if you have a mild case, you don't know if it is going to lead to long-term complications because it's not, you don't have to have a severe case to then have long-term complications and long haul. You can have a mild to moderate case like I did and have long-term complications. So make it way easier for yourself and just get vaccinated. I, I, I also have had it and I had, for me, I would say I had a really bad case. I wasn't on a ventilator or anything, although my wife spent, about five days in the hospital and she had a very low, uh, pulse ox reading, but I had such extreme pain 24 hours a day. And it, it's not like a cold. It doesn't go away in two days or three days. It like, it was like three weeks of like nonstop 
pain. And I was not vaccinated. And everybody wrote me and said, oh, did you get vaccinated? And they, they thought I had a political reason for not being vaccinated. But not everything people do, and I've said this on the podcast before, so for listeners, I'm sorry if I'm bore, boring you. Not everything has a political reason. I was just either stupid or lazy or both. <laughs> like a friend of mine, I kept promising him, oh, I'm going to get vaccinated. I'm going to make an appointment. But I was, I was like your guy in the log cabin in the woods. I hardly ever left my house and I was just, I would make appointments and then I would just get lazy. I wouldn't go. And, uh, I kept intending to go and then suddenly I got COVID and it was just miserable. So anything that could have relieved that experience, I don't have long COVID at all. Although my wife doesn't have her sense of smell back yet, which is good for me. I don't have to bathe as much, but, uh, other than, other than that, I I'm fine now, but I really wish I had not gotten it. it was extreme it was the worst sickness i have ever gotten and uh yeah so i mean i don't know uh, uh i don't really know the science or technology or anything but i wish i had done anything including vaccine to have a you know prevented what what happened but but i always wonder though about like like this walla walla person that's the co community college she's from who seemed to have like a like a lot of people are doing religious ex uh exceptions but a lot of that's BS, but she seems to have like a legit thing and her ability to make a living seems to be deprived. So I, but I agree with you. There's a, there's a fuzzy line there. I mean, no document should be read a hundred percent. Literally you have to also use, you know, common sense on, and I'm not, and this is on every issue, not just on one issue now, but this, this also reminds me like Roe versus Wade, you know, this is the, the pro-choice versus uh, pro-life kind of uh, uh, landmark Supreme Court case that uh, ultimately allows for abortion. I kind of wish that they had made an amendment specifically about abortion because the way Roe versus Wade is constructed is that it's about your right to privacy. And so I don't really understand what Roe versus Wade is versus the Constitution. I wish they said there was an amendment. Here, you're allowed to have an abortion up until such and such time, you know, whatever that, whatever you know, everybody decides instead of this weird law that everybody's contesting every year. So, well, I, I think if 55, you know, white dudes in the 1780s had the foresight to like put in an amendment about abortion, I'd be, I'd be pretty stunned. I don't think this was top of mind uh, for, for them. But, you know, where the, the court in Roe versus Wade found the constitutional right, you know, in their interpretation to have an abortion comes from people's right to, you know, in the 14th Amendment to, uh, you know, like, like I mentioned, life, liberty, and property. And the, the, the idea that you can't have, be, have those things be denied without due process of the law, the court has said that if that's the case, then fundamentally the founders thought that we all have the right to life, liberty, and, and property. Like that is just something we should be able to have. And so that's called substantive due process that we have those rights. So privacy is found under the liberty section. So, you know, mm. being having a right to privacy falls under liberty. And since, you know, from substantive due process, we all have the right to, to liberty. So it's sort of like a subsection of that. I personally think that maybe a better argument 
would have been made. And one of the Supreme Court justices, I don't know which one, um, I believe it was in Roe versus Wade. It was either Roe, Roe v. Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I think it was Roe v. Wade said that a stronger constitutional argument would be to say that the right to have an abortion is one of the rights that falls under the Ninth Amendment, which is, says that, you know, James Madison had the foresight to say, you know, not all of our individual rights are in here. We may have forgotten some. Mm. And what is in the Constitution can't be used to deny the rights that we forgot to include or that aren't in here. Um, I think it's probably a, a, maybe it's a vaguer argument, so they were a little nervous about that, but I think it is a cleaner constitutional argument to say that, um, you know, a right to an abortion is one of the rights that can't be denied by what's in the Constitution that we do have uh, under the Ninth Amendment. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if that would have been more contested. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. 
I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And and so here's a question then. So obviously state by state, everybody's making their own laws about abortion and other things. Do state constitutions somehow supersede or do not supersede the federal constitution? So when the if it the, the federal constitution is is supreme over state constitutions. So specifically if it is in the constitution and it's mentioned as a federal power or it is not or it is in the constitution and it says the states can't do this doesn't matter what your state law is like that the constitution trumps it but anything that doesn't fall in those categories is up to states and local governments so theoretically states and local governments have infinite power because if they're only you know restricted by what the federal government specifically can do because the federal government's power is only restricted to what's in the constitution and what you know the, and, and bound by what states can't do. If the Constitution doesn't say, hey, you know, if you're a state, you can't do this, everything else is up to you guys. And one good example of that is education. There's nothing about education in the uh, Constitution. You can, you know, fund education through the federal government under the ability of Congress to raise taxes and fund, you know, the um, common defense and general welfare. So education falls under our general welfare, but there's no specific educational power that the federal government has. So, to answer your question, states, if their constitutions are directly at odds with what is in the federal constitution, that would be unconstitutional. But if it's not mentioned in the constitution, whatever, it can be in a state constitution. I see. So, and then it could potentially, someone could sue and it could potentially get up to the Supreme Court and they could decide, they, they basically, essentially they extend the constitution when they decide something's unconstitutional. Right. That's exactly right. That's a great way of, of, of that's a good verb, extending it. Um, but I think what a lot of states are doing with abortion specifically is that they're trying to pass laws that they're pretty aware are unconstitutional under the current reading of the, the law and, and based on Supreme Court precedents. So what they're trying to do is get sued. And they're trying to get that challenge floated up to the uh, Supreme Court to to look at Roe v. Wade, and that is happening this term. The Supreme Court is taking a look at abortion uh, challenge. I believe it's a Mississippi law um, and is going to rule on that by the by June. So they, there is a possibility that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Uh, Casey could be, um, could be revised. And, what, what, do you, and, what do you think will happen? Um, I find it if there was no blowback whatsoever, I think that there are more, uh, there are clearly more um, opponents of abortion on the court. And I think that if they were, if they weren't worried about how the Supreme Court would be perceived or the, the, um, 
the, the backlash that would happen, uh, they probably would overturn it, but I'm sure they're gonna find some way to kind of basically not explicitly overturn it, but take all the power away. Um, and it, there are, there are it kind of find a workaround, kind of in the way that the Texas law, um, you know, the Supreme Court ruled on the, on the Texas law and said, well, it's not the state that's enforcing it. It's not the government that's enforcing it. It is random citizens have the ability to sue people for $10,000 if they think they've been involved in an abortion. Um, that's not the state, you know, enforcing I didn't the law. Hear that. that's, yeah, so Texas basically passed a law, this legislative session that said that allows private, it's the most restrictive abortion law in the country. It bans abortions after six weeks. And it says that anybody who's, ex, who's suspected of taking part in um, an abortion or facilitating one down to the Uber or Lyft driver that took somebody to uh, the clinic, they could be sued uh, by anybody in Texas, any resident of Texas for $10,000. Um, and so what you're doing is you're not outlawing abortion in that sense, but you are basically deputizing private individuals to use the law to, you know, threaten somebody's financial livelihood. So there's no intent. You don't, you might not know anything, but you can still have to pay another citizen $10,000. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that would be up to the courts to, to decide, but it does open the, it, it, it creates a really scary environment where you have, you know, people using their, their, I guess, civil, you know, being able to bring a, a civil case against somebody if they think they've been suspect, suspected of an abortion. But what you're doing is you're getting abortion clinics to close because of the, obviously the financial threat is, is gigantic. And so that's one way to get, you know, clinics to close and um, to basically, you know, individual doctors would be afraid of their own livelihood if people found out. So it is one way to create the desired effect without using the actual state as the enforcer of the law. So let me ask you a stupid question because it's related to all this. Do you think everybody actually should have a right to vote? <laughs> like, and I'm not talking about defining it by demographics, but maybe people should have some sense of the law or what the constitution says or some knowledge of the biography of who they're voting for. And, you know, I don't know, pass a test of some sort. And I know that's usually could been uh, a taboo because of racial reasons, uh, but just like blanket, it seems like everybody on Twitter should not have the right to vote. <laughs> Something like that. My answer to this would be simple. While I do want schools, I, I, I'm in favor of every state and every school uh, board in the country mandating three full years of civics education, um, mandating uh, the taking of a civics exam uh, in order to pass um, uh, uh, high school, in order to graduate high school. Um, what I think makes the most sense is if you pay taxes in this country, you get the right to vote, full stop. If you pay federal taxes, you get the ability to just help decide what that money gets spent on. Um, that's kind of why we you know, wanted to have a country in the first place. We were against taxation without representation. Like it, it, to me, it's not any more complicated than that. If you pay federal taxes, you should have a say in how the money gets spent. I, I get. I guess I agree because almost any other alternative is too complicated. And you're right. Like that is the 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 slogan for the American Revolution: why we're we're independent. Which I guess begs the question too: Do you think we should have had an American Revolution? Because <laughs> um, like like England freed the slaves before we did. 
and in many ways has a, as you know a better like they don't have a president where who spends two billion dollars being elected like you know their parliamentary system doesn't seem that bad and it, and it seems less and, and it allows for more than two parties there are coalitions of parties like uh it seems very it seems like we put ourselves through a lot of trouble and killed a lot of people in order to end up at roughly the same place, if not if not a little worse, just by being independent from England. And we're such allies with England anyway. What does it really matter at this point? Well, it's definitely an interesting idea. I think what's unique to the United States is that our democracy, our uh, constitution has lasted longer than any other constitution, functioning constitution in the world. Like we literally have the oldest national governing document of any country um, in existence. And we were one of the first countries to have democracy and basically give power central, you know, not centralized to a single monarch, but to a bunch of people to vote on. And yeah, there were restrictions on who could vote in the beginning. And, um, you know, there have been for the entire history of this country, but it, you know, we, we kind of forget that that was a pretty radical idea back in the, the 1780s to, to allow just, you know, p- people to have the power rather than, um, you know, unelected leaders. So do I think that it would have been better 200 years later to still be a part of England? I think there's no way to answer that question. Um, what I do think is that there are some things that we could learn from England and we can look at what has made our country worse uh, uh, since its inception, or really just in the last few years. You know, I think a lot of the things that you just mentioned happened in the last two decades. I mean, things like Citizens um, United being a huge one to have this ability to just spend unlimited amounts of money um, opposing or uh, supporting a candidate is not fair. It's inc- it, 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 I find that insane that um, we have that ability in the country to affect elections like that. A two-party system is completely toxic and corrosive and, and mm. um, uh, leads to uh, uh, basically just con- perpetual gridlock, not in the seeking of a solution, but to continue to you know enrich people on either side, whether it's uh, consultants and ad makers and uh, people who just sort of work in the political duopoly industrial complex. So there are a lot of things that I would like to borrow. Those things take large uh, uh, efforts to change. Uh, large systemic change uh, can only happen if everybody is educated, if everybody's aware of how things work. Um, and so that is why, that's another huge reason why I wrote these, these books. Because if we want to do the things that you just suggested, we have to know how to pull the levers. Like if you could pass one amendment right now, what, what would it be to, to improve things? Publicly funded elections. What does that mean? Public, so basically not allow private citizens to fund elections and basically have you know a portion of our tax dollars uh, go equally to every candidate and then they have to make their case that way. But, uh, but like, for instance, anybody can run for president. So like I actually went to the FPC. It took me five minutes. I filled out the paperwork. I'm technically running for president in 2024. So does that mean I would get an equal por- portion of public funds? Um, I think it depends on like how you maybe you could tether it to how you do in certain stages of the primary or certain uh, poll numbers. I think there's ways to do it where you don't have just everybody in the United States running for president and then being able to get like a stipend from the federal government for their campaign. Like you'd have to meet certain thresholds, um, you know, established uh, uh, in order to accept that money. So that, but like, here's a good example, right? Seattle right now, 
uh, in their municipal elections. They do this thing called democracy dollars where every, every resident of the city of Seattle gets $100. And you can spend it however you want. If you want to give all 100 to the candidate for mayor, you can give it to the mayor. If you want to do 50 to your you know, city council member and 50 to your mayor, you can do it that way. But by taking away the, the ultra wealthy's ability to just dictate everything in our government, um, by disconnecting wealth and the ability to run a campaign, uh, I think you would see a radical change in this country. That, that's if I could only do one amendment. I think that's the one I do. So how, how do the wealthy get around it right now? Because there is some limit, right? It's like $5,000 that you could, uh, that Max, you could donate to a candidate. Well, that's, there, there's, uh, there's the difference between hard, hard money and soft money. So hard money is if I'm, if you're running for president, I directly give you, I can directly give you, I think next, next time it'll either be 2,900 or 3,000 in the primary, 3,000 the general. So, you know, 58 to six thousand dollars is the limit I can give you for the entire campaign. But that's not including the money that I can give to PACs. Uh, if I give a federal, I can give federal PAC, you know, I think 5,000 in the um, primary and 5,000 during the general, so $10,000. But where the the lid really, and then parties, you can give way higher limits to parties. You can give like a couple hundred thousand dollars to, you know, the really? RNC or the DNC. Yeah, so like mm -hmm. that's why the big ticket fundraisers are always money going to the DNC or the RNC. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, that, that's, you know, again, another reason political parties are, are, are atrocious, have become atrocious, horrible uh, institutions that are purely about money. Um, but I think uh, the, the thing you're really talking about is super PACs, where super PACs are not legally allowed to coordinate with a candidate or campaign, but they can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money advocating for or against a candidate or advocating for or against a political party. But they yeah, cannot. why is that legal? That's like seems the, ridiculous. The, the Supreme Court said in 2010, Citizens United, uh, a case that it counts as free speech. Corporations have the ability to, to have free speech so they can spend unlimited money, um, you know, expressing their opinion. But the problem is, is that these opinions uh, look very similar to you know, normal campaign ads. And if you see these as, you know, ads on Facebook or ads on Instagram or, um, you know, ads on TV, like, yeah, there's a little disclaimer at the end, but the average citizen is not going to be able to say like, oh yeah, that was a super PAC ad. Oh yeah, that was a presidential campaign directly paying for their ad. You know, the, 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 the speech looks very similar to that financed by the actual campaign or candidate. So, it's a huge problem. It is corrosive. Um, it also, I think, is is responsible for a significant amount of disinformation and misinformation around election time. And it basically gives political power to whoever has the most money. I, I have one idea for an amendment that I think would be very useful, which is that any member of Congress, every vote for Congress, they have to make it while physically in their district. So they can't go to D.C. They have to if you're a congressman from, you know, some district in the state of Oregon, you have to be in your district. And the reason for this is that it makes it harder for lobbyists to wine and dine you. Honestly, that is a brilliant idea. And Thank you very much. I, I think you should talk about that more often. I mean, it sort of negates the whole reason we have people in that that's that's really fun. That's really interesting. The whole reason there's a Washington, D.C., like there's a capital where they all go is because it, in 1787, it would take months to get to... Well, you didn't have uh, phones. You didn't have Zoom. So you couldn't, you know, have a vote. I, I think that's really 
that's a really interesting idea. You should use every power that you have to promote that. That's really cool. All right, I will. I'm going to do it. I'm going to form my own super PAC <laughs> just supporting that idea. So, so okay, so, you know, oh my God, WTF does the Constitution actually say a non-boring guide to how our democracy is supposed to work by Ben Sheehan. And what does the Constitution say? A kid's guide to how our democracy works. Also by Ben Sheehan. Great books. Are people responding to it? Like, are people saying, man, I didn't know the Constitution before, and now I know it? Yeah, I'm getting a lot of really positive responses from the adult book. Um, I had a lot of people uh, reaching out to me, asking me questions, telling me that they finally understood their their country, that they really um, were more engaged and, and, and could follow the news better. And I also have gotten messages from parents telling me that their kids like stayed up all night reading the book and woke up early the wow. next day. And so it really just goes to show you like the information that I'm presenting isn't new. It's always been there. But I think it's just for every generation, you just have to update the, the presentation and the tone and the style of communication. And by doing that, I think you're going to have a lot more re um, resonance uh, and the information will stick rather than relying on outdated dialect or um, modes of communication from past generations that may have worked but aren't working as well today. There's probably a lot of issues like that. So there's obviously there's the Constitution, uh, maybe r religious thought, like for different religions, so kids don't get it. You know, kids get taught religion when they're like in six years old, seven years old, eight years old, and then they don't get taught it anymore. And again, I'm not advocating for any particular philosophy, but just adults think about religion the same way that they, as they thought about it when they were little kids and, and you know, thought and philosophy are a lot more sophisticated than that. And I wonder what other issues there are like that. I don't know. Have to, history in general, I guess, hardly ever gets updated. Well, it's funny that when I, when I was writing the original book, I, I saw a book that was kind of similar called Your Rugged Constitution that was written in 1950 and every pronoun was he and it was like the and the illustrations were ridiculous and it was like very clearly this like you know sort of patriarchy dominated like you know men are the politicians the women help out in the kitchen type vibe and people were still using that book today to to like teach people with the constitution so again it's really just like communication is is the key to getting information across so it's just however you are best not just me but anyone however they feel most comfortable to communicate and just authenticity and speaking to people on the level versus um you know talking down to them it's just you know it makes the information way more accessible and interesting maybe you should do a series like you know WTF, you know, what the fuck was the Civil War all about? What the fuck was World War II all about? What the fuck is impeachment? You know, stuff kinda like, like that. Kind of like a Four Dummies, right? Yeah. I think you should Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be more active. Uh, there's a, I have a project that I, I can't announce yet, um, but I, I, I'm getting ready to announce uh, in the coming weeks um, that I'm really excited about. And so I'm going to be a, a lot more active on social media and probably especially TikTok um, to, to do stuff like, like that, kind of like one-minute breakdowns. Oh my God, I can't, I can't wait. So you'll have to tell us when, when you do that and we'll, we'll link to it. And also, um, I know you addressed this before about the funnier die stuff. When I asked you, like, you know, you, you mentioned this is what, this is what makes uh, a video shareable. So you said if you have an extreme political viewpoint one way or the other, or if you do something that's a big surprise, what other, what other tips to shareability do you have for people? So everybody wants their writing, their videos, their TikTok videos, their their blog posts, their podcasts. Everybody wants to be shareable. So what what are what are like the top ten tips for that? 
Well, I would say it's not it's not sharing extreme points of view. It's sharing something that you really agree with or you really disagree with um, that you think other people will have an opinion about. So yeah, one way to do that is to share like a really extreme perception. But, you know, if somebody is like, you know, if somebody, you know, if the Ravens win the Super Bowl and like you're posting about that and you're saying you know, like the Ravens are the best team of all time, you know, people are going to either agree with that or disagree with that if you're a fan of a different football team. So it doesn't have to be like extremist content to get a, a reaction out of somebody or to um, to get engagement. But the surprise thing I think is always exciting because people always also like to be the first person to like introduce their friends to something cool or, or new or, or surprising. So I, I think that catching people off guard is a really good way to, to get their attention to want them to, to share, you know, this, this cool thing that they saw. Um, but I also think that sharing and posting about what is really exciting to you is important. You know, if I was doing a book about, um, I don't know, gardening or, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, woodworking. Like these are things that I think are, you know, cool. I like looking at gardens. I like looking at well-constructed pieces of wood, but I don't have a passion for either one. Um, and that passion is not going to convey if I was to do a series about either one. I grew up around government. I have soaked this in from a very young age. I studied it. I find this stuff interesting and I find it interesting to like make it accessible and, and understandable for, for people. I like that challenge and I think that passion comes through in my work. So I would say like, if you were trying to build an audience for something, talk about what you most enjoy talking about because you mm. can't fake the passion that comes through when you are excited about something and sharing that knowledge with people. I like that. All right. Well, well, Ben, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and explaining all this and answering my totally naive questions about the Constitution and, and U.S. history. Come on again anytime you want. Any, you know, when you have these TikTok videos or the next thing you're working on, come on and, and tell us about it. So, so thanks once again. I, I would like that, James. Thank you for having me. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.